Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. Hey everyone, welcome into today's Believe in Wizards podcast. I think we got a little bit of a different vibe for you today here. Today's going to be an interview with Dan Grunfeld. Uh, Grunfeld might sound familiar to all you longtime Wizards fans. Uh, he's the son of Ernie Grunfeld. Dan was a hell of a baller in his own right at Stanford and played overseas for a number of years after that. But uh, he most recently wrote a book about sort of his family story and family journey, not specifically about Ernie, not specifically about him. It's sort of like a family memoir, if that makes sense. It's called By the Grace of the Game, The Holocaust, A Basketball Legacy, and an Unprecedented American Dream. And it really is that. I mean, like Dan's entire family story here is crazy. I think you'll want to listen to the interview, really check it out. And then after we talk to Dan, uh, we'll switch over and and do some Wizards talk and catch up on how the team's been doing the last couple of days. So uh, yeah, stay tuned, rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff, and, and let us know what kind of content you want. I think, you know, the goal here today was just do something a little different. Wizards haven't been killing it the last uh, week-ish or so. So, you know, breaking things up from just the regular formula of recapping games every week, I, I thought would be kind of a cool change of pace. Before we get to Dan, just a quick word from one of our sponsors. As always, here's Bet Online. We're back and better than ever. A new web interface for the rest of the NBA season and more props, odds, and lines than ever before. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all basketball and football betting action this season. Head to the new updated desktop or mobile website today to sign up and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BELIEVE50 to receive your bonus. From basketball, football, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports. Bet Online, where the game starts. All right. Uh, with that, let's get to our interview with Dan Grunfeld. Welcome back. I'm here. I'm joined by Dan Grunfeld. It's a name that'll sound familiar to, to Wizards fans. Dan, you were both a college basketball player, professional basketball player overseas, father, son, grandson. All those things are relevant in your new book. So we're introducing you here as an author uh, by the grace of the game, the Holocaust, a basketball legacy, and an unprecedented American dream. Uh, Dan, this thing was great. I'm I'm an avid reader. I've crushed like 60 books this year, and this was by far one of the best. So I'm glad you would you know come on and talk about this because I think people uh, would really love it, and it'd be a good thing to get some family members for a holiday gift here too. Thank you, man. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here, and I appreciate the kind words about the book. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know in our little intro to the episode before before we got on here, I gave a little overview about what it's about, but I think people would really benefit more from. From hearing from you, you know, what it's about, um, why you did this, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So, you know, basketball is kind of the family business for me. Sure. You know, my dad is well known in the industry from his playing career, from his days as an executive, certainly in the Washington community. Um, I you know, played at Stanford and had a fairly long professional career myself. So people kind of know that story. But was, what's less known is that my dad is the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And so both of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. My grandmother, so this is my dad's mom, is 96 years old. She lives in the Bay Area, 25 minutes from me and my wife, still cooks us big meals, and she's she's just the greatest. But you know, what they went through, you know, to to survive was was unimaginable. And even for my dad, you know, he was born under communism in Romania. And so I'm sure a lot of Wizards fans have heard him in press conferences and interviews over the years. He kind of just sounds like a New Yorker because that's where he went to high school. But you know, he came to America when he was nine years old having never touched a basketball and not speaking a word of English. 
And then, you know, about a decade later, he was standing on the podium as an Olympic gold medalist for the United States. So it's really an American dream story, a story of how much basketball has impacted our lives. And, you know, I, I do a lot of writing. And so, you know, as I retired from my professional career and had some space to explore some other things, this is the story I wanted to tell. I mean, obviously, folks that are basketball fans will be familiar with your dad, familiar with you. I think sort of, you know, the star of the book here really is your grandmother. And this is like a very touching sort of tribute to her and her role in both of your lives, obviously. Like, you know, I, I think it's just really important that that her piece of this like shines as much as it does because she obviously went through such a heinous event and situation. And uh, if you could just talk a little bit about how, you know, important she was to, to both of you and, and your dad on your kind of basketball journeys too. Absolutely. So my grandmother is the central figure of the book and she's the central figure of the story. You know, and that's, that's really the, the truth of it. And my dad said recently, we were, we were talking to someone about this book and he said, listen, I just played basketball and my son just wrote a book, but my mother is a hero. And, and that's the truth. You know, she, she not only survived the Holocaust herself, but she risked her life to save others. And she did save others. She was able to obtain 17 false documents for other people, which she distributed, you know, and so she has a very big story. My dad's dad, who's also a Holocaust survivor, had it a little easier, although of course he didn't have it easy, but he was in a forced labor camp during the war. But my grandmother was on the streets of Budapest fighting for her life, you know, and she was saved twice by a Swedish diplomat, Raoul Wallenberg, who's considered to be one of the greatest heroes of the Holocaust. But she is just the most inspirational, amazing person. I know she's had such an impact on my dad's career, my career. You know, she, I wanted to go to Stanford because of her, you know, ever since I was in seventh grade and because she lives close to campus and it's a good place to go to school. The weather's great, as we have talked about. So uh, for a lot of reasons, I wanted to go there. But uh, when I did get to Stanford, you know, she came to every single home game I played. And, you know, I had a very hard knee injury when I was in college. And just having her there, knowing what she went through, having her perspective, it's always kind of grounded me. And I think my dad as well to kind of just you know, keep your head down, keep working, keep fighting, because that's what what she's done in, in situations that, of course, far outweigh anything we've been through. You had a tragic uh, uh, end to your oh, junior season, right? Um, that's right. And it's just got to put that in perspective, though, knowing what she went through. Like, you can't complain about rehab and things like that when, you know, you've got this person over here that, that went through such a terrible tragedy. And you know what's interesting? She, my grandmother is the first one to like make space for your disappointment. So she would never say, oh, compared to what I went through, sure. she was more devastated than anyone because of my injury, you know, because she knew what, what it meant to me. So it's pretty remarkable that while she all, she makes space for your feelings and kind of your disappointments, there also is that, that higher level of perspective. And she said to me that, that, you know, I got hurt. My grandma was sitting 20 feet away at Stanford, you know, and we went out to dinner that night. And of course I had a big knee brace on. And she said, you know, this, this is hard, but if it's the worst thing you ever go through, you're going to live a really good life. And she's, and she's right, you know? And so it's kind of that, that higher level of perspective that she's always given. And yeah, it's been huge motivator for me and for my dad. Your dad was kind of, I, at least as a fan, I looked at him as kind of a, a quiet, more reserved, private guy. You know, some GMs, you hear him on uh, ESPN, you know, every month uh, doing kind of an update, but, but Ernie never really did that. And I think this book is a really like deep look into him and sort of what shaped him and his values and what he was about and hearing about your grandparents too. It's just like hard work, head down, don't need the publicity for it. One of the stories I thought was really kind of interesting was that, you know, as good a high school basketball player as your dad was, his parents didn't even really know that until they showed up to a game one time and, and tried to get into the gym. I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And to, to your point about my dad, like, he, he's not a marketer. He's not a big public talker. Listen, people who know him love him in the industry and outside the industry because he's he's so warm. He's he is gregarious. But mm -hmm. when he when he approaches his business, you know, he does it like my grandparents did, you know, head down, work, let the you know, and he doesn't talk about it that much. But uh, a little bit of his background. And I, cause I think it does kind of contextualize all this stuff. You know, when he came to America, you know, this is a chance for our family to start over, right? From the Holocaust, from living under communism. And my dad had an older brother who was eight years older than him. And my dad's native language is Hungarian. So what he called my uncle in Hungarian translates in English to my king. So that just shows you how much he revered his older brother, right? And he was diagnosed with leukemia almost immediately when I got to the United States and he passed away within a year. And so that's just such a crushing loss for my whole family, certainly for my dad. And so here he was in New York City as an immigrant, didn't speak English, 
had lost his brother. My grandparents had to work all the time to build a life. So he just went to the playground to make friends, to learn English and to heal. And he started playing basketball, you know? And, and so to your point, like my grandparents knew that it was something that he did, you know, it's something he did in his spare time. Outlet. And, you know, yeah. he, it was an outlet, you know, and listen, in New York city at that time, like kids needed, <laughs> needed something to do. So they're happy. Hey, Ernie likes to play basketball. We, we work at our fabric store and, they never saw him play. And by the way, my dad's dad, my grandfather was a great athlete. He was a world ranked ping pong player and a semi-professional soccer player, you know, six foot three, big kind of burly guy. And, uh, so he loves sports and athletics, but they just didn't know. And so, uh, to the story that you, you referenced, they were at their fabric store one day and they got a phone call and it was my dad's high school coach. And it was, my grandmother answered and he said, Mrs. Grunfeld, you have to see your son play basketball. And the reason they had never seen him is because my dad's high school games were in the early afternoon and my grandparents would have to close their fabric store, which like, you know, for immigrants in New York City yeah, trying to tough. build a life, yeah. that's tough. You can't close the store, you know. So they finally did that. And, and the, the following week they went to one of his games and but they didn't close it too early. So when they got to the gym, the game had already started and the gym was full. And so the usher at the door, door was locked. He said, hey, sorry, you can't come in. The gym's full. And, you know, my grandparents, their English wasn't very good. And my grandfather said you know, guests of coach or parents of player. And the usher said, Hey, we, we can't help you. And then my grandmother said, our son's name is Ernie Grunfeld. And the usher said, his eyes lit up. He said, why didn't you say so? You know, <laughs> the door, the door swung open and uh, they entered the gym and looked around. And, you know, my grand, my grandma still tells this story, by the way, my grandfather nudged her elbow and said in Hungarian, of course, Hey, if Ernie's so good, why isn't he playing? And my grandmother pointed right to the middle of the court and she said, look right there, that's Ernie. My grandfather couldn't even recognize him, you know, because it kind of like had trend. You don't see him in that sort of context very often. He had kind of transformed from this, you know, immigrant kid who lost his brother, kind of searching for something to uh, in a position of power. And, uh, you know, after the that game on the court, my grandfather said to my dad, because he used to make my dad come to their fabric store to work. And he said, you never come to the store again. You know, you just focus on basketball. And, you know, he was an All-American a year later. So it, it happened very quickly. For me, I'm in my early 30s, so your dad was the GM for the Wizards for my entire heyday as a fan, realistically. But I didn't know much about him as a player, just a little before my time. And I think the 30 for 30 about he and Bernard King kind of really uh, made me aware of what a unbelievable college career he had, too. How was that? I mean, obviously, you weren't around for the college career part, but how was that growing up with a guy that was, you know, a, a college All-American and, and things like that, like as as a player, not just, you know, him, the GM? Yeah. So first of all, I'll say that my dad in high school was a phenomenon and in college was a phenomenon. Mm -hmm. In the NBA, he was a solid player. He played nine years, had a good career. Sure. Uh, but I mean, yeah, he, he graduated from the University of Tennessee as the second leading scorer in the history of the SEC. Right. And so that was 1977. So today in 2021 he's the fifth leading scorer in the history of the sec to this Still day right good. so it was pretty good and and i think again he had such a long successful career as an executive and certainly our generation people likely didn't see him play of course so they don't know and and if you tracked his nba career he was a role player but i mean he was you know an olympic gold medalist and really a phenomenon so for me growing up listen it's very cool to you know to have a dad who you know played in the nba when i was born and then was an executive i got to be around the players and have such awesome experiences i also got to learn the game you know from from the best i mean he did it there's never a question that i couldn't ask him that he didn't have a really interesting poignant perspective on every you know even when i became a pro like i had so many like nuanced situations with coaches and teammates and that's his bread and butter so he helped me so much but there's also pressure, particularly when you're younger growing up, you know, and there are expectations. And my mom and my dad, they said, like, you don't even have to play basketball, like do what you want to do, find what you love and explore that. But, you know, what kid doesn't want to be like their dad, especially when like, you know, your dad was an NBA player. Like, it's pretty, it's a pretty, it's cool pretty thing. Darn good. Yeah, it's good. You know, you want to do that. And so, and I write it and you know, Matt, I write about this pretty honestly in the book, like there are definitely amazing parts to it, but there's pressure and expectations. And I kind of had to balance all those things in my own life. One of the stories I, I, be honest, I kind of never thought about this because as fans, especially when you're passionate about something, you kind of forget like the people part sometimes of this and like the family lives. And, and you talked about while your dad was still the, I want to say it was the next GM at the time that you were like so stressed out as a kid by some of that, that you had like eye related issues and mm -hmm. like it manifested itself on you just sort of absorbing that pressure. And I think that's an interesting thing for 
for fans to kind of remember that, like, you know, there's another end of this. Like when you are saying certain things about somebody that's somebody's dad or brother or son or, or whatever, it's kind of hard to hard to kind of separate the two, but it's an important thing to do. And that was a kind of thing I, you know, I'd never really considered on like the front office side of things. Yeah, for sure. I mean, listen, we, sports is very competitive. It's very passionate as it should be. That's what makes it fun. You know, and I think when you like for my dad, you know, he ran teams for three decades. He, he knows what he signed up for. Yeah. You know, that's not, you know, you, you put your head down, you do the work, but fan bases are not happy. Media is not happy. You know, that this is kind of the nature of the industry, but to your point, there's always a human side of it. And you mentioned like I, I had a nervous tick in my eyes as a kid because I did internalize a lot of the, the you know, the pressure and, and all these things. And it really relates to the book and the story, you know, because what basketball did for my family w- was incredible. And I always felt that growing up, how important it was, you know, and my book is called By the Grace of the Game. You know, we, we, we titled it that intentionally. I mean, the game was heaven sent for my family. So to know what my grandparents went through, to know what my dad went through, and to know how the, the role basketball played in that, you really care about it all, you know? So, uh, but at the same time, it brings a family very close together. And, you know, we had so many amazing experiences, you know, through the game, but yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of pressure associated with the industry. We're kind of at the point, you know, historically where like we're far enough removed from the Holocaust that there are very few survivors left mm-hmm. overall. And I think it's sort of people have less personal stories or less personal you know, relationships with, with what people went through there. So I, I thought this book was really good because, you know, as somebody that isn't related to a survivor, doesn't have that sort of firsthand knowledge, it, it gave me somebody's personal relationship to, to that tragedy. But, you know, because I, I know of your family and know you, it made it sort of more relatable because I could kind of attribute it to, to people I'm familiar with. I, I thought that was a really sort of interesting way to do that and kind of keep it in people's, you know, memories, but also you did it in a way that it's because it's weaved in with basketball. It's not this like heavy, you know, historical text all the way through it. It, it has sort of a way that you just sort of made the story uh, a way that I could connect to it, but also it didn't become overwhelming at any point, I guess, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for that. And listen, I mean, you know, like you said, the, the generation of Holocaust survivors getting older. My grandmother was 17 when she was on the streets of Budapest and she's 96 now, you know, and, and the Holocaust in history, it seems like an abstraction because you, you, you can't even comprehend it. You know, six million Jewish people were killed and millions more. But and I always tell people this, and this is one of my hopes with the book, that people learn this history because it wasn't that long ago and it wasn't that far away. Like my, my grandma was there. And listen, this is the Wizards community. You know, Ernie Grunfeld, right? All of his grandparents were killed in Auschwitz. All oh, of them. Yeah. You know, my his parents. So my grandmother lost both parents and five siblings. And my grandfather lost everyone, parents, siblings, everyone. So this is, these are my dad's family. My dad, you know, he, his family was decimated. And, and so, yeah, that it's, it's a history that is really important to convey. And, and I hope that again, through the book, like it's, yeah, like there's a history to it, but there's also fun, funny, light parts. There's an exciting basketball story. And so I hope it does kind of make that history accessible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at least it did for me. And I think it will for others too, especially everything that's kind of gone on, you know, in the last couple of years here in this country or just society in general, I thought the timing was really important because it doesn't take, like, like you said, it's, we're not that far away removed from this where like, you know, if, if you let people be too hateful or too uh, sort of divided that you couldn't suffer, hopefully never to that extreme, but, you know, just it could lead you down a bad road as a society, I think. And, and one of the key pieces here is that basketball, you know, can unite people and bring people of different basket, you know, backgrounds together and, you know, with different experiences. And I thought that was a really cool takeaway too. Yeah. Thank you. And it's true. My grandma still says it like it could happen again, but not just to Jews, to anybody. And, and I think for, for my family, we've always been very concerned when people aren't treated fairly because there was a point in time where, we needed voices, you know, and, and there weren't enough of them. And so you always have to have to stand up against, you know, when people aren't treated fairly, you always have to stand up against that. And I think, you know, talking about my dad and talking about his time as an executive, something people always say to me who know my dad is how fair he is. And I think that that thread kind of stretches throughout the family of just like fairness and treating people, you know, the, the way they should be and standing up for what's right. 
it's incredible. And I think you mentioned this earlier too, but your dad is not a native English speaker. And I was just trying to go through like my mental Rolodex of, you know, of GMs in the, in the NBA that probably didn't grow up speaking English originally, like Messiah Jiri, like this. Yeah. It's like a short list of people. And, and I think that's a job where there's a, such a personal element to it. And to be able to navigate that when like, you know, you did start out somewhere else. And I actually think as the game got more international, it probably allowed him to connect with people that, that maybe not everybody had the same sort of um, histories or backgrounds with, you know, he kind of lived both sides of it, I guess. hundred percent. I mean, and anyone who's had, you know, personal interaction with my dad will tell you, he connects with people very easily, very quickly. Uh, and yeah, and he does, his background is so interesting that he can almost relate to anybody, you know? And, um, you know, when he came to America, he spoke Hungarian, Romanian, and Italian fluently, mm-hmm. you know? And so then of course, as he got older, he lost, he lost Romanian and Italian, but he still speaks Hungarian with my grandma and, and, uh, and of course English, but, and I write this in the book, as you know, cause language is kind of a thread, right? And, and we say in my family, like the ball, the basketball, it doesn't know what language you speak. It doesn't know what country you're from or color your skin is what religion you are that. And that's what, to your point, it's such a uniter, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, so for my dad, you know, he, his first job after he retired from playing was broadcasting Nick games on the radio in New York, you know, and when he came to New York city as an immigrant and didn't speak English, he was denied admittance into a school because he couldn't speak English, you know? Mm-hmm. So then here he is. Yeah. And by the way, at that time, he used to go with my grandfather and watch Knicks games in the, in the bleachers in the nosebleed section. Um, and then he was playing for the Knicks, running the Knicks and then broadcasting games. So yeah, that's why, you know, that's why I wrote the book. You know, it's really a remarkable story. And, and this community knows one that people really have no idea about because my dad doesn't talk about it publicly much because it's very hard. It's a very mm-hmm. difficult past. I mean, was there like a, a moment or an event or something that prompted you to say like, I need to do this? Like, I know I've ever heard you talk in interviews about like, you know, you, you do like to write and you do a lot of writing already, but a book is a big challenge, especially a book so personal. You know, what made you decide to take that on? Yeah, it was kind of, it was a process. And and when I stopped playing, you know, there's a lot of healing you have to do in your own life when you like a basketball career, particularly mine was so intense. And I write about this very honestly for so many reasons. And so, you know, after I, I was processing my pro career and really, again, connecting more and more of my family's story. It just, it grew inside of me. Like, man, I, I want to tell this. I need to tell this. And, you know, like you said, there's a lot of things going on in the world that are scary, that are concerning. And just to have, having seen what my family went through, what we overcame, because again, there's a lot of darkness in this book, but there's more light, you know, it's hopeful, it's happy, it's inspirational. And I was like, you know, this story matters to me, but I think it just matters. And I really want to tell it. And so I approached it like I did basketball. You know, I woke up early to write. I re- once I said I was going to do it, I really, you know, applied that discipline to get it done. And it only took me five years, so I can't say I was like, you know, that I was on it, you know, every single day of it. But uh, you yeah, got work it's, too. It's right? been a <laughs> yeah, that's true. I got a family, got work, but um, yeah, it, it's been it's been a hell of a journey. Is there just sort of one story in particular that you like to tell from this book that that kind of you know? you think would help people kind of get what it's about or kind of sell them on the idea that this is something that they really need to read and would benefit from? Wow. One, one story. I mean, you don't um, have to encapsulate the whole book, <laughs> but, but you know, is, is there a story that either people have talked to you the most about, or seems to really resonate or maybe just even find funny or, or, you know, like something that uh, you think would be good for, for listeners to kind of know about. You know, to me, the most powerful story in the book is about my uncle who passed away. You know, and it's not, of course, a happy story. I think it's the saddest story. And, you know, I, I've learned a lot about myself and about my family from this process. But, you know, again, I, I mentioned my grandmother lost seven immediate family members. My grandfather lost everyone. But my uncle's passing is really the greatest tragedy that happened to my family. And, you know, I'm named after my uncle, you know, and so I've always kind of carried that with me. And now that I'm a parent, I understand a little bit more what, you know, and, and to, you know, for my, for my grandmother, for my dad to lose his older brother, you know? And so I'll tell you, this is, this is a, a difficult, you know, a difficult detail, but you know, when my uncle was, uh, was very sick and they knew kind of the end was near my grand, they lived in Queens, New York city, but my grandfather's painting houses in Connecticut, you know, to, to be able to make a living. And my grandma called him and said, and kind of told him, Hey, you have to come to the hospital immediately. Like he's not doing well. And my, they didn't have a car. So my grandfather just caught rides with 
people to Connecticut. Mm-hmm. He got to the hospital like in an instant. My grandma said he took that to his grave. We have no idea how he got back so fast, but he got to the hospital. And, you know, I asked my grandma, you know, did he make it in time to say goodbye to his son? You know, and she said no. And that's, that's just such a crushing detail. And, mm-hmm. you know, my dad at the time, you know, they, they told my, my dad went to stay with his uncle in the Bronx when my, my, uh, when my uncle was sick. And so, you know, that for my dad was as a 10 year old boy was, of course, you could only imagine, you know, so it's that kind of like depth of emotion that kind of makes the payoff worth it. And that my dad just went to the park to heal and he started playing basketball. And, uh, and I think, you know, another story kind of like off the, off the heels of that, that I think your community will really appreciate of my dad playing at the park in New York city and having a chance to prove himself against some older kids. And one of and there was a fight and one of them took my dad's head his face and slammed it against the concrete, you know, over and over. And honestly, I, I grew up, my dad, my dad would reference that often, you know, cause I, he never forgot about that. And you know what happened later on in the book when my dad was able to, uh, to see that guy again, but now it was my, my dad's turn to be the one delivering the punishment. And he did that on the court and then, uh, in other ways as well. So I think that that's the nature of the book, right? There's hard things. There's also really hopeful things. And there's also really satisfying things. I think at the end of the day, it's satisfying because you see a family go through a lot, stick together, persevere, overcome. And uh, yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's a very remarkable journey. I don't want to give too much of the book away here because I want people to go out and read this and, and read it soon and, and get it for family members and all that good stuff. But I, I thought the, the Buddy Hackett detail uh, is just so almost random, you know, like it, it, it is fortuitous that that was sort of uh, a thing that worked out. But if you could talk about that a little bit, I think it would be interesting for people. Yeah, of course. And that, that crossed my mind when, when you asked that question. And you know, the book, Matt, like, and I always just had this sense, my family story kind of like wheeze in and out of these really important moments in history, yeah. crosses paths with these really important people. And again, I grew up, my dad would just make these comments about you know, this person or that person or my grandmother would tell these stories. I'm like, man, this is, it's kind of like Forrest Gump, you know, we're like, <laughs> right. you're just seeing all these famous people. And so the Buddy Hackett story, you know, my, when my dad was growing up under communism, you know, and my grandma still talks about like that brutality, you know, you, mm-hmm. you couldn't have anything. You didn't work for yourself. It was, you know, so they didn't have a life. And in order to have anything, you had to kind of transact on the black market. And my grandfather was very good at doing that. And it was illegal, but you could be jailed, tortured, killed for that, but it wasn't shameful. You had to do it. And so they were able to save up about $1,000 worth of Romanian money and about 4,000 American dollars, which like was a fortune. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, again, Holocaust survivors, they had chutzpah, as we say, you know, they, yeah. they took hustling, risks, yeah. they were hustling, they had guts. And, you know, when they fled Romania, you know, they were, they were, re- they were, you know, refugees, they were enemies of the state. They were not allowed to bring anything out of the country. But my grandparents said, we got to take our money out. We have to figure out a way. And as you know, they got every cent to their name out of the country okay. and, the American dollars, uh, Buddy Hackett, who's one of the greatest American comedians of all time. He had hosted the Tonight Show, I think roughly 80 times at that point, or he had been a guest. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandparents were able to elicit his help in smuggling out their money. And he did that, you know, and he, and, uh, he sent the money to my great uncle who was in the Bronx with an extra $50 on top, which today is like over a thousand dollars with, with a note that just said, good luck in America sincerely buddy Hackett, you know, and that's the money my, my family used to start a life in America. And then 20 years later, once my grandparents had made good in the country and were in Las Vegas, seeing a comedy show, uh, they got a chance to see buddy Hackett and he remembered and they told him, Hey, our son's a big basketball star now. And so it was really kind of world worlds colliding. I think that's another important theme from the book too, is that, you know, you can get through a lot of terrible things just with like the right attitude and perseverance, but you, you also need like a helping hand from people along the way and, and you rely on, you know, kindness of other people. And, uh, you know, that's one of those stories, but it, it kind of comes through a lot in the book too. And I, I think that's, as people are kind of, uh, standoffish with each other and we've been quarantined for a couple of years now and, and people's skills are kind of not at the forefront for everyone at the moment. Like that's an important thing to, to kind of keep in mind. And, and this is a nice reminder of that. I agree 100. percent This is about how we treat each other. And you know, in the book, I write about you know my dad coming to America and not speaking English, and kids making fun of him. And there were there was one student in particular who taught my dad to read English. They would sit they would sit in the back, speak English and read. They would sit in the back of the room, and he would help him sound out the words and was patient with him. And to this day, he's a dear friend of my dad's. And a lot of those young those kids I write about are some of my dad's best friends to this day because you know he knows what it's like when you you need people to be there to you for you and 
it's very cool since this book's come out. I've had so many people reach out. And again, my dad's not a marketer publicly or even privately. I've had people write me and say, hey, I was at a Knicks practice when your dad was GM and they were, the security guards were giving me a hard time. And your dad said, no, he's with me. And then he sent me a bag of, you know, a, a gift bag of, of gear and clothes. And, you know, I'm like, wow, that's so. And I, I'd ask my dad about it. And he'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, but he, he doesn't kind of publicize those type of things. But I think he treats people that way because he knows what it's like when you need a helping hand. How involved with this uh, process was your dad? I mean, is he somebody you could go to for stories and, and kind of a resource or did he kind of want to let you do your thing and it was more kind of your grandmother pr- providing detail? So I interviewed both my grandma and my dad over this course of a year and a half. And mm-hmm. so now I didn't tell either of them exactly what I had in mind because I needed space. So I said, listen, I have a family project I'm working on. I just want to know the history. Sure. And I had, we had talked about this over the years where I had interviewed them in certain ways. And so he was... It was it was great. We would just talk for like a half hour, an hour, and I would you know really double click on like his experience as an immigrant at the Olympics, the, the whole thing. Uh, but you know, as it relate, I, I I wrote the book kind of in solitude on my own, and you know, it's he's very proud of me. He's very grateful that I memorialized this story, but it's very difficult for him, you know. And he again, he doesn't talk publicly about this history, but you know, my dad is kind of a public figure in Washington, and now you've read the book, you understand kind of his background it probably like contextualizes him a little bit better. And yeah, this is hard stuff. Like basketball is winning and losing what this story is life and death, you know? And so it, it's a whole, it's, it's such a different scope. And um, so while he's very proud, very grateful, there are difficult things here. Be very honest. Like I, I'm always the first person that says like, Ernie made a lot of really good trades in DC, but as a fans base, you, you stick to the one or two that didn't pan out for whatever reason. And like, I don't know. I, I kind of felt like an asshole because I had ever criticized, you know what I mean? Like it, it just, because well, once you know him as a human, it, it's really, or, or you feel like you know him better as a human. It just, it makes it seem so unimportant that uh, X, Y, or Z draft pick didn't really work out. Well, listen, first of all, don't, don't feel bad about anything because sports, sports, you know, fan bases are passionate. And, you know, we say in hoops, like there's winning and there's misery. That's it, you know, and, and the mechanics of, of running a professional basketball team are so intricate. Right. So it's about, there's so much going on. And, uh, you know, listen, you, you, you win, you rebuild, you win, you know, this is, this is the nature of it. So, uh, but, but to your point, there is a perspective there that's important, which is like, mm-hmm. listen, at the end of the day, this is sports and there are human beings behind it all. And so, again, I think it just, it always relates, like, it's totally fair to criticize, analyze all those things. This is sports, but at the end of the day, there are human beings here and there are families here and everything like that. So I've always tried to like, approach it with, with that mindset as well. But again, fa- sports are passionate. Sports fans are passionate. It should be that way. Yeah. Th- that line of personal versus professional, I think is a, like a nice reminder, you know, it just, um, th- that, that was kind of a big takeaway for me, I think too. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about your basketball career here, which I also found really interesting trying to make a, an NBA roster and, and summer league teams. And uh, I don't want to give this one away because it is, it is funny and maybe not one you probably want to tell too much, but there's a really good story with Larry Bird uh, and, a, and a post-game dinner uh, that I think people will, will get a kick out of. But one I do want to touch on because it has, I think, maybe some ties to D.C. You talked about training with Frank uh, in the yeah. Bay Area, and we had Gilbert Arenas on this podcast, and he also talked about training with Frank. Um, and, and this is the guy he credits with sort of getting him into like super shape to go into like peak Gilbert Arenas mode that, that we think mm-hmm. about. You beat Gilbert there, I think, right? Chronologically. Oh, yeah, I did. So did Ernie make that connection for him? Do you know? Like, I mean, how how did that sort of uh, work itself out? And can you talk a little bit about Frank, the personality for, for people here? Yeah, so Frank was my trainer. Uh, Frank trained people for the military. He has gained quite a bit of notoriety for training Gilbert, Blake Griffin, and, and some others. And uh, yeah, Frank always says one in seven elite athletes can stick with my training. I mean, you, you have to mentally it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot. And <laughs> so uh, he, he's, he's an amazing person. He's an amazing trainer, but he's very different. And so uh, I think, you know, and yes, like I think Gilbert, you know, my dad of course knows Frank. And I think that there was a recommendation there, but ultimately Gilbert makes his own decisions and, and always did around who he trains with. And I think he liked, he liked that Frank did things differently and that it was extreme and that, you know, how Gilbert was so known for this. He would come in the gym at 1 a.m. and he would get shots up like 
no one was hungry or wanted it more or would just do anything to be great. You know, Gilbert was that guy. And so I think when he saw someone and says, okay, he's training people in a way that like, no, people can't even withstand. I want to get, I want to take my shot at it. You know? So I think that was appealing to him, but uh, yeah, I, I, uh, my sophomore year at Stanford, you know, we were the number one team in the country, uh, number one seed in NCAA tournament. I missed a shot at the buzzer to, in an up to, for us to get upset in the second round, you know, I had a very bad season. It was a disappointment, but we'd have NBA players come through during the summer to scrimmage. And I was kind of, you know, competing, holding my own. So I was like, man, I, I know I could play at the next level. I just need to, you know, you, sometimes you just need that spark. And so I worked out with Frank all summer and it was to Gilbert's point, it was kind of life changing in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I came back the, the next year and uh, I averaged 18 points a game, five and a half rebounds. I was projected as a first round pick. I give Frank a lot of credit, not all of the credit because I had, you know, circumstances. You got to put in the things, work too, but yeah. You got to put in the work and it was just kind of my time. But listen, I think it speaks to like, if you want something, what are you willing to do? And I, I tell, you know, I speak to groups of young kids about this book and other things. And I always say, listen, set really high goals for yourself. You should, but you just basically make a promise once you do that, that you're going to outwork everyone else. It's the only way, you know? And, um, and I think Gilbert was such a good example of that. And that's, you know, wearing number zero, you know, and he was, he was an every, every man, you know, everyone could look at Gilbert and, and believe in that. And we were talking about like, he was such an unbelievable basketball player. I mean, unbelievable and unbelievable worker and unbelievable symbol for like what you can achieve. So, uh, yeah, he, he and I shared that bond of both spending time being tortured by Frank, but coming coming through on the other side. He's got actually another tie to uh, to the Wizards fan base too. one of our G League players, Kyrie Walker. That was a big time high school prospect, spent the last two years with Frank rather than going to college. He was just trying to prepare for the draft. So. You had a great season after uh, working out with Frank. So did Gilbert. So hopefully that's a good omen for for Kyrie Walker. So fans here will uh, appreciate that, I think. Listen, he put the work in. That's all. Yeah, he put the work in. Any Wizards players that uh, you were sort of late in your college career slash earlier in your professional career by the time uh, your dad became the GM here? Any interactions you had that helped you in your game or takeaways or, or tips you learned from any of those guys? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, I, when I was playing at Stanford, I would be in DC for this, you know, come for the summer, I would scrimmage with the guys. So I, you know, could guard Gilbert that didn't go well for me, by the way, but at least <laughs> I got well a for many people. It. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, uh, yeah, you know, Antoine, you know, all Quran, like all these guys I would, we would play Larry, you know, I know mm -hmm. has been you know, on this show for so long, like just being around them, seeing how they prepare. I learned, you know, watching Gilbert, like I learned a lot from that just Again, how far are you willing to go? Like, you know, he he was just doing so much more. Uh, and so really inspired by that. And yeah, and also just as a fan watching those teams. I remember my first year as a professional player, I was playing in Germany. And that's when Gilbert was hitting buzzer beaters every other week. He, you know, Milwaukee, Utah, if you remember those games, you know, shooting the shot and turning around before it even went in. Like, I just remember my whole teams getting together to watch Gilbert play and we were staying up to like four or five in the morning to watch like those memories will live forever because it was like some of the, the happiest times I had with basketball but definitely learned a lot from those guys just how they prepare Antoine's game you know because I wasn't the best athlete I, I was a floater I shot mm -hmm. floaters and like to see how unorthodox Antoine was around the rim you know it took a lot from that so yeah I, I was lucky I you know you know Matt you read the book I, I write a lot about privilege and I, I'm privileged in a lot of different ways and one of them is I had this access that made me a better player. That's something every basketball fan would, you know, kind of dream of growing up around those guys. <laughs> and, you know, your, your dad even talked about like, you know, watching those games, uh, Nick's games with his dad and stuff, and, and then being able mm -hmm. to, to be around those guys. I think that's um, incredibly cool. Uh, what is Ernie up to these days? Uh, is he involved with the game at all or what's he up to? Yeah. I mean, and you know, again, from reading the book, how big of a, a part the game has played in all our lives. So it, it's, it'll always be here. Yeah. He still lives in the area, you know, enjoying being a grandfather, you know, my sister's family, my family, uh, you know, still helps people with certain things on the basketball side when they need it. Still watches games all the time. We, we talk about it and yeah, he's, my dad loves the game of basketball. He's just not only for all it's done for him, for all he's done for the game, but he's a fan. We, he just, we just love it. He loves to watch and, you know, talk about it. And so, yeah, always we'll be, we'll be connected to the game, but no, he, he's doing well. Where can people find this uh, really, really wonderful book? Give us the full plug here. Yeah. Thank you. Again, it's called by the grace of the game. Uh, Amazon's your best bet. You know, it's, 
it's pretty cool that it's been the demand is very high, which is awesome. Sure. But you know, supply chain issues in the United States are a problem right. for everyone. So yeah. I, uh, you know, we always want to support independent bookstores, which we were doing. But I tell people, you know, your best bet, go to Amazon, you know, it'll it'll be there for you. Dan, where can people find you social media, all those kinds of things? Yeah, Twitter, Dan underscore Grunfeld, you know, Facebook, uh, my I have a book website, dangrunfeld.com. So I really do like to engage particularly around this story because again, like it's a basketball story, but it's bigger than basketball. And, and I thank you, Matt, for kind of highlighting that today because it's the truth and you know how personal it is and kind of how meaningful it is. So I'm always really grateful when people read the story, engage with it, but also engage with me about it because it just means a lot. Yeah, I mean, I, I promise uh, people who listen to the show know we, we keep it pretty real on here, so wouldn't say it if it wasn't true, but I have churned through a bunch of books this year, and this is easily one of the, the best two or three that I've read by a, by a pretty good margin, just because how important it is, but also how relatable it is. So um, congratulations on, on a great book. I hope it's extremely successful. I hope you keep writing. Looking forward to whatever the, the next thing is here, because uh, you clearly got a gift for it. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And the one other thing I'll mention about the book is, you know, that the forward is written by Ray Allen, yeah. which is really cool and uh, important. And so I, I always tell people for as great of a basketball player as Ray was, he's an even greater human being, you know, and he's really advocated for Holocaust education and awareness. So that's another plug I want to get for the book and really just shout out Ray because he's he's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome to have a Hall of Famer on and off the court uh, be involved with it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Dan, thank you again for the time. Best of luck. And uh, everybody, go check this out. It's available now. It's on Audible, all that good stuff, too, if you're more of a of a ear reader than a, a visual reader. Which I am now, by the way. They're great. Yeah, they're great. You know, I have a kid, so I could do the dishes yeah. and change his diapers and have a book in my ear. So it's awesome. Absolutely. Uh, Dan, thanks well, again. Matt, appreciate it, man. Thank you. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I do. That's probably one of my favorite interviews that that we've done on this show, just because it it actually has some meaning beyond, you know, just a dribbling ball, but it does still sort of bring us back to that thing that's connecting all of us here and, and the reason why we're all here. So uh, Dan could not have been nicer and more generous with his time. Again, I, I really do hope you'll consider the book. Curious if, you know, if you were not an Ernie fan, if you will feel differently after having read this, but uh, I came away with a new appreciation for him and just sort of, um, you know, not needing to be a, a self-promoter or a marketer or those things. And I, you know, I think that probably leads to him getting a little unfair criticism. You know, I, I always remember this like Larry Bird quote about how a head coach should never stay with the team for more than three years. I think it's a little longer for general managers, but 16 years is was a little too long in, in my personal opinion, just because it's good to get a fresh voice and a fresh, you know, fresh face for the org sometimes. It doesn't mean that I, I don't think that that Ernie was probably like an incredible guy to be around in locker room and for, for the staff and people that are still around, they, they speak highly of him as a person. And just given from what I experienced with Dan, I, I you know, I think just the kind of quality people they are, it, it's probably safe to say that that definitely um, carries through to Ernie too, I would think. So yeah, really, really interesting book. Like I said, it, it's heavy at times, but it's also light at times. And that's a tough needle to thread, which I, I think Dan does really well. So yeah, I hope everybody checks that out. Just going to talk a little wizards here for a minute, but just want to do a quick uh, word from another one of our sponsors. So uh, we've got Lightbox with us here again this week. So say goodbye to dull gifts. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the brightest gifts of the year. Using cutting-edge technology and innovative techniques, they've cracked the science of sparkle, creating the highest quality lab-grown diamonds you can find at a light price, only $800 per carat. They have the same chemical makeup of natural diamonds, but are just grown in a lab. Because of their process, they can create stones in blush pink and beautiful blue, as well as classic white. Lightbox lab-grown diamonds are the gift they'll never want to take off, priced so they won't have to. They really do make any outfit sparkle. Visit lightboxjewelry.com to add sparkle to your holiday shopping. That's lightboxjewelry.com. Lightbox diamonds, never a dull moment. All right. Well, speaking of lighting things up, the Wizards have not particularly been doing that of late. Struggle to get through uh, the Pistons game, which... And if they'd have blown that one, I, I think I would uh, I would be in a much worse place. I know everybody's saying that's an ugly win, and there's a lot of bad takeaway from it. But a win is still a win, um, and they're clearly like searching for some stuff and struggling a little bit. So if you can struggle and still win games, that's that goes a long way. Given the head start that they had at the beginning of the year, if they go 500 the rest of the way, they're a playoff team. So if you just beat the teams you're supposed to play early in the season while they're spunkier and still have something to play for, I think that's that's going to bode well for you longer term. So uh, 
myself included. I do think it's good that we, you know, all kind of take a big collective deep breath. I've heard a lot of Beal sucked the other night. He hasn't been that good this year. We have to trade Beal. We got to rebuild. Okay. Let me just talk about like team building here for a second. This is my take. I think, you know, everybody's welcome to their own sort of personal opinion on this, but the one thing you're committing to with a rebuild is you will be bad at least for some amount of years. The Wizards are winning right now, and our fan base is still collectively seemingly kind of miserable anytime they lose one game. So, you know, them going 10 and 72, I don't think half this fan base is still going to exist because we'll all have had heart attacks or, or you know, just stressed ourselves out so much we can't care about basketball anymore. So you are committing to being bad for X amount of time, and that's if you're lucky. If you rebuild and things do not go well, uh, you know, that's that could be decade plus uh, of being bad. And one of the criticisms of Tommy Shepard is we still don't really know how good a drafter he is at this point. Like, I like Hachimura and Avdia, but, you know, I mean, they're not like fringe stars, in my opinion. And we're not hitting high on second round picks thus far. Maybe Todd turns into Kevin Garnett. I, I don't really see that, but. You never know. It's just one of those things where like, there's a lot that goes into that. And then you need a lot of luck on the back end. Look at OKC. I mean, they drafted three Hall of Famers, but they couldn't get them together in a time frame enough to keep them together and actually win a championship with it. So if you spend 10 years being bad and hope that you get lucky enough to get three potential Hall of Famers and still can't win with them together on that window of their sort of first deal, they could all just leave and you've done all that for nothing anyway. So to me, I think the better path is you try to win, you establish credibility as an organization, you show that you can make the playoffs a couple of years in a row. That does matter to free agents. We've had them on this show talk about, you know, not wanting to go to a place that's that's been a cellar dweller for, for however long. So just being good for a certain amount of time should theoretically help you. And then you keep your books as clean as you can so that they align with other stars potentially being available. And you hope that somebody's unhappy and needs a new place, or maybe you've collected some assets by then and can do a sign and trade or, or whatever it is. But to me, that's a more realistic path at, at at least being like a high-end playoff team. You have to have a top five guy realistically to be a championship team. And tanking is one way to do that. But a lot of these guys change change places. LeBron has changed a bunch of times. Kevin Durant has changed a bunch of times. Like Steph Curry and Giannis haven't, but guys move. Who's to say that a Luka or somebody doesn't get fed up with Dallas in a couple of years. And maybe he's okay with Beal being his second fiddle and wants to come to DC because it's closer to get back overseas in the offseason. I don't know. Like there are all kinds of factors that could play into it. And to me, I'd rather watch at least like a reasonable playoff team that's exceeding my expectations overall and then still have some sort of hope for the future. And, and that, to me, I think what Tommy's done deal-wise so far, I think aligns with a little bit more sort of his skill set is to like make good deals on the margins and then flip a big one every once in a while and get some value for, for people that maybe you couldn't. So I don't know. I, again, I'm not saying like don't don't be in your feelings if they uh, they lose three out of four, or four out of five or whatever, but I think it is kind of important to keep that in perspective that every time Beal has a bad game, we, we don't have to do the please trade Beal immediately. He's the worst ever. You know, he had a couple shots late in that game that were pretty clutch, in my opinion. Yeah, he had like the one turnover. It is weird to me that the ball handling gets so loose when anybody actually pressures him late in a game, but hopefully that's something he keeps working on. They have not shot well, like as a team. And I just, Law of averages says that that will correct itself at some point. You know, they, they've been rough the last stretch. Beal's averaging a little over 20 over the last 10 games, like 26 and four shooting splits, like 45, 30, 75, not ideal. Dinwiddie, eight, four and four over a 10 game stretch in the last, you know, couple weeks here and shooting below 35%. Like, I think below 30% from three, which is rough. And I know Bertans is the third highest paid player on the team and he has been mostly a net negative. So like that signing has not worked out particularly well, but you know, maybe Tommy can pull a little magic with that or, or maybe the guy just gets better at some point. It just, he's probably can't be worse. Like he didn't get here by being this bad a shooter. So, or shooting 20% from three or whatever he is at the year. Uh, So that has to fix itself at some point. But to me, there's still a lot of bright spots. Like 
Daniel Gafford has been really good. Defensive field goal percentages, he's near the top of the league. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome to see. Like, if you look at all the best defensive centers, uh, Gafford has been one of those guys. He protects the rim. And, you know, anytime Gafford has a bad game, it's, oh, he's a bum. He can't catch. We have to get him out of here. The dude's 23. He's continued to improve with more meaning, more meaningful minutes, more responsibility. Odds are he's going to keep doing that. And that's what you hope for. I mean, Harrell's been probably the best player on the team for most of the season, but he was bad in the Detroit game. And there's a lot of like, oh, we got to get this bum out of here, trade him. Like, okay, just like calm down. I guess I don't want to explain to everyone. It's just like, I know it's hard, but calm down. We all take a deep breath. They are plus 500. Very few of us expected that before the season. And they haven't played that well yet. Like odds are they will play better. And hopefully that leads to more wins. They've got a tough stretch of games coming up here. But if anything, we learned from last season that 17 and 32 can turn around pretty quickly. Being 14 and 10 or whatever, 15 and 11, like so be it. If if you have a good backstretch of the year, which I think suits this team well, they are reasonably deep. They are about to get players back with hopefully fresh legs when they're healthy. That should position them for a strong back half of the season too. So if you can even just tread water through the kind of middle middle months here, I think that that's, that's a big thing. They do have to figure out the offense a little bit. You know, I, I've heard a lot of conversation about like, they clearly can't run Wes's system. Wes's system is not working. I would be interested to hear from those people what you think Wes's system is. Like, please explain to me what you think they're running that's not working and what they should do more of. I, I would love to hear more detail from people kind of beating that drum. I'm all about the run a little bit more selectively, get a few easy possessions, few easy points. And, and Kuzma's talked about this, you know, their pace has sucked, I think was a quote, um, their transition sucks. Okay, well, if you have a new coach who wants you to play a certain way, that that takes a while to figure out also. And, you know, I think that's really just kind of kind of where they're at at this point in the season. But I've liked what Wes Elson has done. Is the offense clean? No. But guess what? You hear from pretty much everybody in the league that these teams run 85% of the same stuff from team to team to team. So at some point, it does come down to execution as well. And it's been not as pretty lately, but at least early in the year, they did exactly what they wanted and created very good open looks for people. And they just didn't go in. So Okay, now teams have scouted them a little bit more and figured out what they're going to do. And I think the shooting is actually better, but they've been defended better as well and, and had a few less easy looks. So it's just all a balance, right? I mean, they'll figure some things out and they'll be better for a while and then other teams will figure them out. And it just, that's the nature of basketball or sports in general is adjusting and making changes on the fly and continuing to just try to tweak things in a way that makes the most sense for your personnel. A lot of this is got to be, you know, the coaching staff learning this personnel. There's only so much you can learn from tape um, when you're practicing limited amounts of time. Like it's just got to be kind of figuring things out on the fly. And I hope that they're able to do that. You know, Wes made a lot of immediate upgrades to the defense, although at times that's been a little spottier here the last couple of games. So I, I just think that this is, an opportunity for them to kind of rally together. Uh, there's been some sort of cryptic tweets from people like Montrez Harrell. So I don't know what that means. Uh, I think it'll be interesting to see uh, what, what that's actually kind of in reference to. Um, but all I'm saying is the honeymoon shouldn't be over yet. The team's mostly playing hard, even if they're not playing particularly well. And again, it is sort of a likable group of guys for the most part. So I just, I'm trying to look at this as an opti you know, optimistic lens for like the first time in my Wizards fandom of Dinwiddie probably will get better. I would imagine Bertans will get better. I would imagine Beal will get better. I will imagine Hachimura will come back and be you know, what we expect from Rui. I think Thomas Bryant will give them a spark and some energy and some fresh legs you know, in kind of the winter months when a lot of teams are looking for that. So that'll be good. I mean, Montresero is an undersized center. And that does sort of limit what he can do. And energy is his big thing, but he carried them for stretches offensively this year. And then that's got to take a toll on a guy that, that kind of takes a physical pounding. So just being able to have a third guy to give him some rest, whether he wants it or not, I, I think is a good thing. Like there are nights when you shouldn't try to play Montrez 29 minutes in a game. Like if you can get away with 
Gafford taking the load that night, great. And I think you need to do that for Gafford's development too. And hopefully, you know, conditioning becomes, you know, even better for, for Gafford as the season goes on. And all these things are a process. There's learning curve involved. Very few of these guys have actually played together, uh, at least in the roles that they're being expected to play here in DC. You know, Kuzma has been incredibly clutch. I think that's another bright spot. Like the guy has basically hit three or four game winners this season, you know, uh, relative what you consider a game winner or not, but game icer, at least for a couple of those, I've been really pleased with his ability to do that. And okay. Yeah. Trade Kuzma. He went one for nine in the first three quarters one night. Okay, great. Well, you got to take the good with the bad in sports. And again, it's not like there's a reason we were able to trade a distressed asset on a bad contract in Russell Westbrook for these guys. They they are not all all all-stars. They're not going to play at an all-star level all the time. KCP is going to shoot one for six some nights, but he's also going to have four for six nights and he's going to play mostly good defense. So like it's the good with the bad. I think this team has been more good than bad. That's an important perspective to keep. Again, just my opinion. If you want to tweet, go to hell, Bradley Beal or whatever the tweets are like the last couple nights, it's just, that's totally your prerogative. I'm just saying that that's my perspective. Maybe that helps in some way to kind of take a calm, rational breath uh, for everybody, but Maybe not. So uh, the other thing I'm going to talk about, John Wall will not be a wizard. Like I keep seeing that tweet also. Uh, yes, Dinwiddie has not been good for most of the season, but other than like a couple of games where Beal was out early, it's just not going to happen. There is no John Wall reunion. I think we've romanticized, you know, what he can do based on a couple of Rockets games where it was good, but not like world beating kind of stuff. And he's not going to want to come here and be Dinwiddie's backup and vice versa. And I don't know what that does for your chemistry. He and Beal are on good terms personally, but it was clear that Beal was ready to stop playing with Wall or he wouldn't have been traded. Got Ted Leonsis throwing shade at Wall on the way out and Wall talking about loyalty is important to him. Like he feels slighted and Ted was clearly over it in the other way. So like, that's not a reunion that's going to happen. So I wish John Wall the best. If he chooses to, to take a buyout, I hope he goes somewhere and plays and is productive and stays healthy and gets a ring and all that good stuff. But it's not going to be in DC. And that's just sort of my take on things. Uh, I guess stranger things have happened, but I wouldn't bet on him coming here and being some magical savior for this team and uh, getting guys a bunch of easy looks. The other thing I thought was interesting, and we haven't had a talk chance to talk about the last couple of weeks, Davis Burton stole, uh, told a cool story during, I think I want to say it was after the Wolves game the other week uh, about, well, it's the one where he finally uh, actually made a couple shots, which was great to see. And he said he felt like he, uh, that they took the lid off the hoop for him. He told this really funny story, in my opinion, at least funny, um, that uh, the first day Matras Harrell walked into the Wizards practice facility, he told Burton that he's glad he doesn't have to play him anymore because he doesn't want to have to chase him around and stuff like that. But he also said that they almost fought in a game once. I'm just going to go on record as saying I would pay to see that fight, even if it's like with boxing gloves on or like kid gloves or or whatever, sock them boppers, you remember those inflatable things? Like I would pay to see that. I'm just saying. So uh, Wizards, if there's like a charity thing we can do here, let us know because I think a lot of people would throw in some money for that one. Again, overall, Wizards, more good than bad. I think that's the takeaway. Thanks again to Dan Grunfeld for being incredibly generous with his time. I, anytime we have a guest on the show, no matter who it is, even if it's just a friend of mine to talk about Wizards, um, I'm incredibly grateful and thankful. You know, with, with Larry focused on family and, and dad duties a little bit more this season than normal, or not that normal, not that he's not focused on being a dad, but you know, that that he has not as been a regular participant this season. I, I think it's been really great that people have been willing to kind of step in and help fill the void and as Larry's son goes off to college and stuff like that, hopefully we can uh, make this a little more of a regular thing again to, to get him uh, back in here and get his perspective. So thanks for sticking with us. Rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. You know, if you want to sponsor a podcast and get some ad reads on here for your company, like let us know. That is another thing that people have been doing too and reaching out about. So um, you're certainly welcome to talk about uh, your bakery or your Etsy shop or whatever those things are. So hit me up and uh, we can, we can make those kinds of things happen. Get some ad space going here for you. As always is believe in wizards. I'm Matt Moderno. Uh, hope everybody has a good week. Hopefully we see a couple more wizards wins. 
Hope you're doing all your holiday shopping, all that good stuff. And we'll talk to you next week. And as always, this podcast was brought to you by betonline.ag. Can't forget that part. ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time there's granger offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need plus you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you call clickgranger.com or just stop by granger for the ones who get it done